0: You are, you are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Uh, well, depending on the size of the pupa that are coming off, but you know a, a really good a really good pattern to dangle just to start off with is, is our an old reliable black and red holographic ribbed uh, pupa with a white bead, or a zucchini, a black holographic flash group bodied pupo with uh, with regular copper wire rib and a brown magic bead and a tuft of white uh, yarn or um, antron do for the gills. Those are both good search. I call them searching patterns. Uh, um, that th- for uh, actually for any. Uh, be it under an indicator or being uh, be it dangled under the boat, 20, 30, 40 feet, and uh, of course, you know, we always want to be able to land a, a fish, that first fish that we do catch, and then um, if it's big enough, you know, we can we can do a proper throat pump and uh, and get more dialed into what actually is coming off in in, in terms of size and color.
1: Welcome to the fly fishing 97 podcast featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry We focus on guides conservation resort managers gear and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers The fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the fly crate
2: theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing the Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine. The convenience of having flies delivered right to your door. Some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. TheFlyCrate.com.
1: Here's your host, Mark Hopley
2: welcome to this edition of the fly fishing 97 podcast really happy you chose to join us this time around we got something extra special for you somebody that i have wanted to get on the show since day one and man have i got a lot of questions we've got brian chan on the line now i'm gonna brian i'm gonna run through your resume as quickly as i can but bear with me (laughs) um brian is with rise form fly fishing He's a uh, fisheries advisor, a retired fisheries biologist, stillwater educator, brand ambassador, um, basically been working with trout in in the Kamloops region for many, many years. Author of books, Fly Fishing Strategies for Stillwater, Stillwater Solutions, Fly Fishing the Trout Lakes, um, Fly Fishing Strategy Seminars, often on uh, sport fishing on the fly. Um, if you check that show out, you'll see Brian on there very often. Um has a stillwater fly fishing store along with phil roley who we've had on the show oh i don't know probably four times now but uh and of course uh fly fishing patterns when it comes to stillwaters brian is simply the guru um the bmw uh invented that brian's marabou wiggler chan's ruby-eyed leech caronamid pupa the bh blob we could keep going but brian thanks so much for doing this
0: Hey Mark, uh, I'm really pleased that we're, we're we're finally able to connect. It's been a couple of years of trying. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I know you're busy, and you're just telling me you're busy doing some filming. Um, and I, you say you're retired, but it doesn't really seem like it from my end.
0: Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I am kind of. I am retired from uh, sort of, but I. I still. am pretty active uh, doing outreach work for the. Uh, Freshwater Fish Society of BC, and that basically encompasses uh, doing um, producing videos, uh, short videos on how to fly fish in lakes uh, so that they can use it on their um, educational uh, efforts. And I'm uh, also, uh, you know, uh, do, doing a lot of uh, other uh, video production, filming with uh, my, my great two friends, uh, Don and Dale Fresky. With sport fishing on the fly, and uh, also with uh, Mike Mitchell from um, BC Outdoor Sport Fishing, and uh, you, when I'm not uh, filming, and uh, uh, I love you know I spend as much time on the water as I can, and all, I've also started. Uh, I didn't guide last year, and I, I have guided for the past 11 years, but I, I, I started pick, uh, st- uh, taking out a few of my, my clients out. Uh, just recently, very carefully, so one person in the boat and uh, mm-hmm. up until now people that live in the in the interior regions. But uh, as things open up and uh, and uh, we get over this COVID hump, uh, yeah, I, I I miss taking out a lot of my uh, great uh, former uh, customers and now friends. And uh, I, I enjoy I enjoy teaching, and I just I, I love seeing someone catch. Uh, fly fishing uh whether whether it's just watching that bobber go down i, I, I it's just a lot of fun for me
2: well i can relate 100 and i'm really appreciative of how much knowledge you share um with us as fly fishers over the years because and phil talks about this a lot too and i know that's something that you shortening that learning curve for people that are new to the sport or trying to figure it out um it just adds so much enjoyment to their you know fly fishing experience
0: yeah you know it's uh it's funny. Uh, when I was fil- filming yesterday, uh, doing a society uh, a video, uh, one of the questions they wanted me to, to answer is, you know, why fly fishing? Why, why not just stick with a spinning rod? And, uh, uh, and I, you know, and I answered the question by saying, you know, my my first fish I caught in freshwater, my first trout, was caught on a spinning rod, a two-inch red and white plastic, round float with a big dew worm hanging under.
2: <laughs> was that uh, on deer lake
0: i've still got a picture of that fish it was an 18 inch trout caught in a urban lake in vancouver and i will never ever forget that image of that bobber bouncing up and down and honestly that hooked me for life for, for fishing in lakes and prior you know now, i think that i was nine years old oh. but prior you know my first four or five years of fishing and even beyond that were uh fishing in the ocean and um, with my dad he was an avid salmon fisherman but I always after the hatching that first trout I just really piqued my interest about fishing in lakes.
2: Hmm. It's it's interesting to me, Brian, the way you verbalize that because I think for for a lot of us on Stillwaters that fish with indicators, there's something that's very, you know it takes us back to our youth, as watching that little, you know, like you said, red and white bobber go down. Whether now it's a probably a, a chartreuse chan indicator, I would imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it. You know, I, I get ribbed a lot from people saying, "Oh, you want to do bobber fishing?" Well, yeah, I am bobber fishing, but uh, the equipment's a lot more refined. But it's to me, it's the science behind why we're fishing with indicators, regardless of what's underneath. It, 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 so many people think indicator fishing is just restricted to chronomids, but it's such an effective way to fish with other subsurface food sources of trout. It's, yeah. You get the fly in their house, and sooner or later, they're going to wander around and eat it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's well said. And I, you know it's something that I've really noticed, Brian, in the past, I don't know, Eight ten 10 years is, is balanced leech patterns, um, balanced dragon patterns, balanced damselfly pattern. You can make just about anything balanced and fish it under an indicator.
0: You know, it, it just, it just makes sense tying, presenting your subsurface patterns on, uh, in, in the position that they swim in. And, uh, and certainly, uh, the balanced leeches, balanced damsels, even balanced shrimp. Now, uh, uh, you know, it just it, it it goes on and on, and uh, mm. it, it's such an, an interesting time to be a Stillwater fly fisher. And certainly, if you're a newbie, just getting on to fly fishing lakes, the resources available to you, the fly tank materials, the techniques that are being developed by individuals everywhere uh, to present patterns different ways, such as such as a balanced uh are 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 just almost infinite so it's it's a it's a wonderful time to be taking up uh fly fishing and in particular fly fishing in still waters
2: yeah yeah well said something brian i'm really curious of and i'm sure you've spoke to this hundreds of times but if you had to look at your biggest influences like when i run into somebody on a lake they'll name brian chen they'll name phil roley you know, they'll name, um, I'm trying to think, uh, maybe Skip Morris, somebody like that. Who has influenced you? Who did you learn from?
0: You know, I I, I always uh, start off, uh, you know, answering that question. Uh, you know, I thank my dad for taking me fishing uh, to begin with because he truly got me significantly hooked on fishing, which resulted in my career as a fisheries biologist. I was so focused on working with fish. But once I moved to Kamloops, because that was my goal in life, to to get to the interior to fish lakes, I was so fortunate to meet several uh, very influential uh, anglers in Kamloops. Uh, And, um, of course, the biggest influence on my fishing uh, outlook and the way I approached lakes was Jack Shaw. Mm. And I I became uh, close friends with Jack. He kind of took me under his wing as a young twenty year old uh, guy that just moved to Kamloops. and uh, uh, he, he he taught me so much about uh, the fishing lakes, but fishing it from a biological point of view. That's the way I put it. and uh, and uh, the techniques he taught me and, and the reasons why and how fish behave. For a, for a layman he he was incredibly insightful and 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 his knowledge base was uh mm. he 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 just fine to he you know he was a pioneer in chronomet fishing but besides that he was a pioneer in tying imitative stillwater patterns yeah so he had a had an incredibly strong influence on on the way i i fish but other anglers and camels like Irv Ross and uh, Mo Bradley right. uh, were, were all all had uh, uh, all had a uh, uh, you know a, a, gr- a wonderful part of uh, helping me uh, develop uh, into who I was as a as a fisherman.
2: Mm-hmm. That's uh, your name and some names there. I love it. And and that um, Jack Shaw's book there. I, I believe it was Fly in the Trout Lakes. That really got my juices going when I saw some of the patterns in there trying to represent dragons and chronomids. And obviously the patterns we fish, they haven't changed that much. I mean, but now the the possibilities are infinite, as you mentioned with all the time materials, but that book really, really struck a chord with me.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I, I, I've got a number of uh, Jack's patterns and I've, and I've tied them you know the old school like we're talking patterns he developed for chronomids in uh in the 70s and i i can still take those patterns out and and catch fish on them and uh they're just so so realistic using materials of that day and i can only imagine his creativity would have been if he had the materials that we have now
2: <laughs> that is a good point Yeah, very true. And look at it this way, Brian. Like, think if you had a crystal ball in 1970, the patterns that you would have been tying, including blobs and boobies and coronamids that nobody even knew of.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, I just think back, if we had the patterns now, back then, it would have been, I I, I probably would have moved on to golf. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: How is your golf game? No no. <laughs> no, no, it's not happening.
0: No, I, no golfing for me, that's for sure. <laughs> so,
2: Brian, I want to take some time to get to know you off the water. You ready for a few um, different questions, just kind of trying to figure you out day-to-day in the Kamloops area?
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
2: What? Let's talk tunes. So when you're in your, I think you're driving a Tacoma, if I remember, or if you're in your Toyota or whatever you're driving in your truck to the water, your favorite still water, what is playing in the stereo?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you're probably going to laugh, but uh, you know when I go fishing, uh, when I went fishing with my dad, he he always had the Radio One, and back in the '60s and early '70s, he was a crazy Nat King Cole fan. Yeah. So I've got tapes of Nat King Cole, are DVDs, um, DVDs, and uh, I, I I put a I, I put a a disc in the <laughs> in the car and play play some of the stuff you know and I I just yeah it's it's fun yeah. I, you know I'm playing that old music for me and then uh, people that know me are gonna chuckle but you know I I always want to see a deer or more than a deer maybe a few deer when I go fishing and it, it's my lucky uh, it's kind of like my good luck charm seeing a few deer yeah and if I herds of deer. <laughs> then I, I know it's gonna be a good day.
2: <laughs> it's it's funny you said that now on on a couple levels. Nat King Cole, that makes so much sense, so smooth. I can see you just heading out to the water, listening to that. Um, but you said something there that I notice a lot too. When the fishing is good, the deer are on the move. Everything's feeding, and it kind of sometimes I think translates into how good or you know productive our day on the water is.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know one thing I learned. I learned from Jack Shaw. He, he always told me, you know, when you're out on the lake, you watch the cows, the cattle, and because we, we fish so many grassland low elevation lakes, and there's always cattle around there grazing. And he said, you know, when those cattle are up and feeding, you're you're gonna you're gonna have some decent chances of catching fish. When those when those cattle are are uh, chewing their cud, laying down. Oftentimes, the trout respond in the same way. And, you know, what he was referencing was, uh, you know, activity levels of uh, animals in general. And, uh, you know, Jack was a firm believer in the sonular tables and uh, certainly, uh, you know, the uh, issues around a full moon or and barometric pressure. Uh, you know, he didn't like to go fishing on a falling barometer, which obviously makes sense Um, and he liked those days of stable barometric pressure or rising barometric pressure
2: you're throwing a lot of nuggets in a short amount of time because i i couldn't agree more i totally the solitaire tables i struggle with but i just want to make sure i'm on the water when those major feeds are happening if it's a full moon get out if it's a new moon get out and it just I honestly believe in that, and and like you say that you see that in the deer, you see that in other animals on the way to the lake, and you know what I go by. You'll laugh, Brian, but I got a koi pond. I, I raise koi, and I those guys tell me when I go to feed them in the morning, like I do every morning, and say I'm heading out to the water. If they're not hungry, I'm like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't go today.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, you know there's there's a there's a lot to that uh, that. That, those theories behind, um, you know, um, metabolic activity levels of uh, animals in general, but it all, it, you know, it's all part of the, of a bigger package of, um, you know, what constitutes a, a great day on the water. You know, I often, you know, when I'm out there in the in the fishing dour and you know, the fish aren't happy, you know, that that's that's, you know, I'm a firm believer. That's why when you throw a booby on. It it, uh, it it's kind of your your ace in the in the back pocket on a on a day when the fishing's tough. You throw one of those things on. You start stripping it through their dining room, and uh, you end up if you watch your catch and the fish you catch on on uh, boobies. You often get a higher percentage of males, and uh, because they're more aggressive in general, and uh, it's something that comes through their living room and they they it pisses them off basically and they come out and just kill it
2: <laughs> yeah no that's uh, i i'm seeing those same things i the one thing i don't notice as much obviously i'm not a fisheries biologist as you are but uh whether fish are male or female i when you got into um And I want to really dig into your time with the ministry and some of the things you you took away as far as uh, managing those trophy still waters in the Kamloops area. But before we do that, I I want to finish up a few of these questions. One go-to pattern that you can't live without. So if you are reaching for one pattern from your fly box, more often than not, what would it be?
0: Oh, you know, (laughs) honestly, uh, if I only had one pattern to fish it would probably be a a ruby-eyed leech.
2: I thought you were going to say coronamid <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah, it's uh, yeah. If it was just one pattern overall for an entire year to fish, it, it would definitely be a it would definitely be a leech. Uh, I've kind of refined the ruby-eyed leech last few years, and uh, i I'd, I'd be choosing a red ruby-eyed leech which is a slightly redder version, a little bit more red in it than the original black and red.
2: For those that don't know that pattern, Brian, and, and you probably should get to know it, but is that a semi-seal body? What's the body made of?
0: Yeah, it's it's it. the tail and body of the original ruby-eyed leech is, is the black and red semi-seal. And, and the red ruby-eyed leech that I like to use is a mix of, it's a 50-50 mix of Red semi-seal and black and red semi-seal. You, you Nick, take take equal parts of that, throw it in your mini coffee blender, and uh, and then tie your the identical pattern with that. And the, and uh, there's a bit more maroony redness to the fly, and it just pops out a little bit, a little bit better. looks looks um, It's a great pattern, great color.
2: Do you know how many of my wife's coffee grinders I've messed up, Brian? <laughs> make sure it's an old coffee grinder um let's talk
0: upstairs and take it from
2: the kitchen (laughs) no exactly i've done that i've done that you get a little more body a little more weight in your coffee favorite place to talk fly fishing so is there a coffee shop that you go to is there a fly shop you frequent is it social media is it calling up your friends where do you get your fix on fly fishing brian when you're not in your waiter's
0: You know, it's, it's, uh, I have a, I fish with a, a small group of, uh, friends in Kamloops and, uh, and also from the coast and we, we, we communicate regularly. We report back to each other on our fishing day and, uh, and we all kind of think alike. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a great mutual, uh, friendship for all of us to share the wealth and uh, of information we all have. And, uh, and then, you know, when we we find something out new about a new pattern that we've been tweaking and uh, like, for instance, this year, uh, what I'm finding in a lot of lakes is, uh, is that the the fish are, there's a lot of Chiarbris pupa in the throat samples of fish. And uh, Chiarbris are a close cousin to, but uh, the pupa is quite a bit different. Uh, for instance, they don't have white gills. Their body shape is different, and they have very drab body colors to the pupa. But uh, trout get fixated on those chiabras emergences, and um, we're constantly tweaking the patterns to try to get a more effective Because it's, it's, it's a tough one. You don't, don't always want a really, really bright pattern. They're very muted, and uh, you know, so that's been our project this year.
2: Have you find you find Brian? They move really erratically, don't they? Not not quite like a crayonumid. Yeah, they
0: they um they they they're twitching. They're doing somersaults uh, through the water, so they're they're very very active. And I think a lot of anglers mistake them for they think they're mosquito uh, mosquito pupa, which obviously they're not. Um, but they act very similar to a mosquito pupa. But, um, man, uh, well, you you know, you think about where they've come from. They've come from the Chiarboros larvae, which is the glassworms. And uh, there's heavy, heavy populations of glassworms in, in a lot of lakes. And uh, so you know that there eventually are going to be several generations of Chiarboros pupa developing in that during the, the fishing year, there are multiple generations in a year.
2: So uh, I've cursed those those glass worms many a time. But that's that's an interesting uh, observation because, in your mind, Brian, fishing say just a black bead chronomid over putting white gills on it that can make a big difference if it's uh, Koppers coming off.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, just little uh, simple tweaks to your existing patterns can often work.
2: Hmm. Have you had a lot of success um, on glassworm patterns? Because that's one I struggle with.
0: You know, I think like many other fly tires, um, we often tie a pattern that looks good to me or or you, and we we fish it and have some pretty good success with it one day, and then I cannot catch a fish on it again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i experienced that last week it's weird or you get one on the first cast and you're like oh this is going to be money and then nothing
0: <laughs> i i i don't like catching a first catching a fish on my first cast today
2: <laughs> i have never heard anyone say that
0: <laughs> oh, it's, it's all, sometimes it brings bad luck
2: <laughs> yeah yeah let's talk sports um now, so your your team. Um, I assume you're a sports guy. Are you a you know a Lions, Canucks, Seahawks? Who's your go-to in the world of sports, or is it Blazers?
0: Oh, oh I you know. I love. I you know. I certainly follow the Blazers, and uh, you know, I've been an avid hockey, NHL hockey uh, fan uh, for years and years. And you know, when I was in my very younger days, I, I, I quite enjoyed playing hockey and organized leagues and that, and it was it was it's a great sport. But uh, going way way back, I you know I always was a Boston Bruins fan.
2: <laughs> Sorry, you're breaking up there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I I, I I was always a Boston Bruins fan growing up.
2: Yeah, I was kidding about breaking up. I. <laughs> Uh, you know, in the province of BC, that, that takes a lot to say that. And I, I know a lot of loyal Bruins fans and uh, man, there's a lot of you out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, good stuff, Brian. Um, this, I'm going to ask you a bit of a philosophical question, but it's one I really like to ask my guests on the, on the podcast. What is the biggest takeaway that you have taken from fly fishing? So in other words, what does it bring to your world?
0: you know um i i think the biggest thing i get from fly fishing for me is i i look at a day on the water as a puzzle and you've got a bunch of pieces to fit into that jigsaw puzzle and uh if you figure it out you get all the pieces in and 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 you catch a bunch of fish and i and that's so rewarding but often your days, you don't quite get the last couple pieces of the puzzle in place before the fish uh, or the hatch ends or the fish quit feeding. And uh, that always brings me back to the water, is is, uh, that quest to uh, try to get that puzzle finished every time I'm out there. And uh, you would think after 45 years of fishing lakes and thousands of Days on the water, I, you know, it would, uh, it, it would, it would get boring. But uh, you know, every day I go fishing, I, I'm just excited to catch fish, and, uh, and then you know, uh, again, excited to take, have someone in the boat, and watch, watch their eyes bug out on catching their first trout, or catching the biggest fish they've ever caught, or catching the most fish they've ever caught, and they just shaking their heads and and they're quivering with excitement.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. That, that never gets old. And I, I I don't know about you, but I'm always attracted to things that you never, ever, ever stop learning. I think fly fishing is a good example of one of those pastimes.
0: You know, you never stop learning as Phil says, you know, and, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lifelong passion. And, um, you know, when you look at um, the state of uh, our anadromous fisheries in Western North America, and particularly in B.C., we're so fortunate to have such uh, diverse and abundant freshwater uh, lake uh, uh, resources in the province, um, and because uh, they're going to, they're becoming more and more important in terms of uh, providing recreational angling opportunities
2: did you have an inkling back in the day when you're working for the ministry did you have an inkling of how big stillwater could come how it could kind of spread the pressure of fly fishing cuz i mean in the past i mean let's face it it was all about rivers it was all but you really in my mind brought stillwaters to the forefront and i think it's still just the tip of the iceberg i feel like it's still growing and probably the fastest growing area in our pastime.
0: Oh yeah, I, I, there's no question that uh, the, the interest in fly fishing in lakes is is on a roll. It's it, it's uh, it's building, and I I first I knew this was going to happen twenty years ago when when I kept reading about the increasing pressure on Western. Rivers, particularly in the western states, and uh, that they were getting overcrowded. And, uh, you know, people were turning, longtime anglers were turning to lake fishing because they were, those still waters were not nearly as busy. And, uh, but along with that, uh, you know, because we get so much of our angling influence from, from the states, uh, that uh, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about how to fish lakes uh, you know so we get we got a lot of river anglers starting to fish lakes and just you know trolling you know leeches and woolly buggers and uh, tractor patterns uh, and uh, as more and more people started to to fish lakes you know that that's when uh, you know people started saying well yeah no there's there's some science behind this and uh, the bug hatches are 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 what we need to to uh, master and uh, so it's kind of taken off from there but yeah no uh, still waters are 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 such an important and valuable resource uh, you know wherever they exist and uh, they're going to become more and more valuable in British Columbia I have no doubt about that
2: I, I think back to the 70s when I was a little guy trolling a Spratly on Panask Lake and how much, how much more now we know, you know, how, how, how much more specific the fisheries have gotten.
0: Yeah, you know, you know, that's an interesting uh, uh, point, Mark, because, they're, they're, you know, we, we've got, there's a lot of good anglers out there uh, and uh fishing lakes in bc and and if you if you take uh you know take a, take, a, take a very popular lake like say for instance Roche Lake which is one of the highest use lakes in the province a lot of good anglers on that lake you know it, it, it's it's prime chronoid season and uh and think about how many caught and released in, in uh three the four-week period when the chronometers are really going, and uh, so those fish are released. But we've we there's been research done uh, on on lake fisheries where re- released fish don't always bite the next day. It it might be several weeks, up to a couple months, before those fish are willing to bite again, and uh, so. What one, one of the, uh, you know, one of the fallouts of so many of us being such effective anglers now is and, and releasing most the majority or all of our catch, uh, is uh, we're educating those trout, so that, uh, you know, fishing at other during the during the uh, summer months it can be quite challenging. And it's not until very, very late in the fall when those fish are willing to bite again. And uh, so what that, what, I'm, what the message here for what I'm trying to say is that uh, if, you're a, if you're a new angler, and a less experienced angler, and you, you, you come up to the interior to fish in the summertime on a very popular lake, it can be hard to catch fish. And one of those reasons is because a lot of fish have been pricked. And, uh, you know, they're alive and feeding, but they're a little gun shy of biting another hook.
2: Yeah, that, uh, that speaks volumes. I, I totally get what you're saying. In my mind, Brian, on a lot of those lakes that, that I frequent, um, I think, owe a lot of thanks to you personally. Because, I mean, I know you were big behind developing some of these trophy lakes, these catch and release lakes. But at the same time, you're right. Those fish get harder to catch. So when you, when you fool them, it's kind of like a feather in the cap. And uh, like you say, most of those fish have been caught. So you know you're doing something right when you can get one of those trophies to uh, go bobber down.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know it does.
2: So I, I, I'm not saying I blame you <laughs> for, for all these lakes that I can't <laughs> catch fish on, but it's sure a, a pleasure to have the opportunity to catch, you know, double-digit rainbows, which obviously we had back in the day. But I think some of the, some of the men. I'd love to talk about your time with the ministry. I know you're. How many years were you with uh, f- um, Fisheries in BC?
0: Yeah, I was. Um, I, you know, I worked on small lakes as the uh, uh, small lakes biologist in Kamloops for uh, I guess thirty years, um, and then um, and and I I have that those thirty years where you know the. Great opportunity to develop, to be, to participate in the development of, you know, our Trophy Waters program that we, you know we 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 um, developed in the Camloops area. You know, it, it just gave us the opportunity. We we had the freedom back then to uh, to make changes to regulations to. Uh, uh and they were relatively easy to do then and uh manipulate stocking rates so that uh we could we could uh create these wonderful uh quality waters because we knew we needed there was a the demand out there and uh having having the, the uh, product to allow you know those those people that were in search of bigger fish it was a wonderful opportunity
2: Well, I think, too, I look at the management of of fisheries over the past 20, 30 years in the province of British Columbia, and I I think that we're really doing something right because the way I see it, too, you guys created fisheries for everyone. You know, there's those catch-and-release trophy lakes. There's those lakes where fish can grow big. There's um, lakes that have kokanee that are kind of put-and-take lakes if people are looking for table fare. Um, You know, creating places... In the province that kind of pleases you know millions of people literally is probably not not an easy gig uh, looking back on your time Brian um, with Stillwaters in British Columbia as fisheries biologist and all the stocking programs that you implemented over the years what was your biggest success
0: uh, oh so what did we spend the most money on
2: <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> You know, um, so prior to the the advent or the initiation of the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, um, we would get very limited budgets uh, to work with uh, fish or wildlife. And I think over the years, we probably spent the most money on doing uh Lake rehabilitations, where we would, uh, you know, basically remove all the fish out of the lake uh, because they were non-game fish species, and often they were um, illegally introduced uh, fish species. And uh, the the, uh, the product, the the, the uh, rotenone that we used back then, was very very expensive, but the rewards were, um, were tremendous in terms of creating uh, or reestablishing great, great fisheries. So, I mean, I think back and uh, look at um, some of the projects that I was involved in way back when, uh, you know, we, we had to go in and rehabilitate Hathium Lake, um, Jimmy Lake uh, was another rehab and we did a bunch of lakes down in the Cane Valley chain in the Merritt area. And that turned turned out to be great fisheries, but unfortunately had, you know, uh, non-game fish species um, reintroduced uh, again and, and uh, kind of put us back to square one. But back then, those were the days, um, you know, that, that, that we would get the, the, certainly the biggest rewards. And if you look actually at... Uh, some of the best fisheries in the province—they're actually results of a laugh of uh, uh, rehabilitations uh, many years ago. Lakes like uh, Roche, Stump, Sheridan, Dragon, White um, are all um, are all there because uh, uh, the the fisheries provincial fish program many many years ago. Um, t- t- treated those lakes uh, uh, to create uh, a monoculture uh, trout fisheries.
2: Brian, how big or how important is it that the proper strains are stocked for what you're trying to accomplish? Like you mentioned, you know, there's, I'm, let's face it, there's red-sided shiners in, in, in a lot of our lakes, and there's certain species that definitely... Thrive on bait fish. Um, how important is selecting the, the right strain for what you're trying to accomplish?
0: Yeah, so we, um, I mean, we, we do have uh, several strains of rainbows that we use in the province. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we definitely have had the most success with uh, the Panask strain of rainbow um, for stocking interior lakes. And that's because the panas strain of rainbows are insect eaters. They're born and raised feeding on aquatic invertebrates. Uh, they, they come from a monoculture lake. Panas Lake is is just supports uh, trout, rainbow trout. Uh, so there's no other competing non-game fish species in there. But the um, the, the the fish culture program provincially has. Uh, adapted uh, to changing uh, uh, angler uh, tastes, as well as uh, uh, trying to make it more efficient, uh, more efficient fisheries with using, using strains of fish that um, can eat uh, or, or will feed on uh, forage fish, for example. Um, and uh, that's why we introduced the Blackwater strain. Um, and then we went, you know, from developing the black waters, um, we now have horsefly strain of uh, of rainbows that we're putting in lakes in the Caribou region, and the horsefly strain are uh, uh, they live a long time? They're late maturing. Uh, they are they come from piscivorous background, meaning uh, they're from Quinnell Lake originally, and uh, they, they're known to, uh, to to feed on on fish as well. So they're so they're good for that, and uh, and the, the other advantage is that they um, they do uh, don't mature uh, until late ages. But the the biggest ad, uh, advancement made in the provincial fish culture pro, fish culture program was definitely the um, the uh, triploiding or or the um, non reproductive uh, Capabilities to to uh, make uh, fish sterile, non-reproductive. So we have our triplite uh, trout, uh, triploid brook trout, triploid rainbows, um, and uh, triploid kokanee as well. And um, having the ability to stock uh, productive waters uh, with uh, non-reproductive fish, um, so fish that don't sexually mature and they can live for seven, eight nine years uh, has, has really allowed uh, current day fisheries biologists to uh, have the ability to fine-tune the management of lakes
2: yeah that that was a absolute game changer when we started fishing for some of those triploid pinasts, realizing how big those fish can get when they don't put the energy into spawning just boggles the mind for me
0: yeah yeah i know it's uh it's always a fine balance you you i mean you can have triploided fish but if you put too many of them in a lake uh you, you they it's always comes down to how many mouths are have to be fed with what food resources are in the lake so um the, the, in these these days when we we have such a such a, a mobile population of uh, anglers um, I feel fisher's biologists need to really stay on top of the management of individual lakes uh, to, so that we can maintain the um, the management plan for that lake whether it's a trophy lake, or family lake, uh, whatever uh, we need to stay uh, abreast of uh, changing angler demographics um, and uh, and uh, make sure that uh, the original plans are, are of how that lake was to be managed are, are, are maintained.
2: Brian, I'd love to give you a blank canvas. So this is your private lake. You're going to grow some big fish. Tell me what you look for in a body of water that can grow big fish and what kind of strains you'd put in it. You
0: know, uh, it uh, the ideal lake... Uh, in my mind, would, you know, like be 50 to 100 acres in size, and 65% of that lake would be shoal, shallow water, water less than 20 feet. The other 35% would be a deep water basin that perhaps went down to 50 feet, Uh, and uh, it would uh, most likely have a, a an inlet stream going out of it, a seasonal inlet um, uh, to to uh, make sure we got a bit of water, fresh water, in every year, and then the outlet would be potentially just seepage, not a not a continuous stream, and uh, you know it'd be a marl base lake, so lots lots of calcium in the water, you know the pH is is eight and a half, even higher. Uh, but uh, if it has lots of marl in the lake, then um, it, it's going to have a good shrimp population. Um, and then as well as other invertebrates, there'd be lots of bulrush, long stem bulrush in the lake as well. Lots of cara on the marl as well. And, uh, you know, I would, <laughs> would stock it fairly lightly with, uh, anyway, I I'm a, I'm a great panacea fan and uh, I, I'd, I'd be putting... Uh, you know potentially a mix of uh of uh, all-female triploid panask and maybe a few just all-female panask in there the, the one the one thing you have to consider about when we stock uh triploid fish that they they do grow slower for the first at least two years than a diploid fish um and so uh they, their first two years are a little slower growth rates, and then they then they can catch up. And then when when the diploid fish is now turning their uh, energy towards the development of eggs and milk, the triploid fish are just putting on body fat. So they they, ca- they catch up and um, and um, can attain those tremendous double-digit sizes that we that we see. In, in the most productive lakes. But in the lake, I would, I would be great. I'd be very careful on the numbers of, of fish I'm putting in. You, you, you have to remember that triplet fish live longer and um, you don't want to uh, overstock the lake and, and graze down the food source too far because it takes a long time for those populations of invertebrates to come back after being grazed down too
2: far by fish you you just described probably all my favorite lakes in the interior of bc when especially sorry i just hit my mic especially when you talk about shoals like 65 percent shoals 50 foot you know holes where those fish can overwinter and you mentioned an inlet stream for a little bit of water movement how would you put an aerator on this lake
0: well, hopefully because we've got enough depth that uh, we wouldn't need uh, an aerator. Um, you know, aira- aeration is a wonderful tool for fisheries managers, but uh, it, it's not always a guarantee um, that the fish are going to make it through. One thing anglers, or many anglers don't understand is that uh, these lakes in the interior of the province, are, they're, they're, they're called eutrophic lakes. They're classified as as being eutrophic that means ecologically these lakes are gradually filling in every year minutely so over time over you know two three hundred years uh the many lakes uh, will turn in from lakes that support fish to to lakes that are too shallow to support fish and then they'll eventually become a shallow pond and then It'll fill in more to become a swamp, and then eventually it'll disappear. So that's the ecological timeline, but takes many, many, many years to uh, occur. But uh, so many of our lakes that we aerate are on the border. They're ecologically very old, and they're on the border of of, of being lakes that support Fish which have a high oxygen demand to lakes that just don't support fishing longer because they're just uh, they don't they're not they're too there's so much nutrients in the water that they just can't uh, develop enough oxygen to, to carry fish over. So that's when you when you think about Mark when you think about the lakes that you've caught your biggest trout in, they're probably extremely productive lakes shallow lakes got wonderful uh bug life in them and probably have pretty good algal blooms in them during the midsummer months you know those lakes are you know they're on they're on the border of of, of not being able to support fish and that that, that just telling you that uh, they're super productive but um there's a cost to being you know a an ecological natural cost to being that productive?
2: Yes, I I know exactly what you mean. I I look back over all the years that I've been fishing, and I'm in the southern interior, so I'm fishing the border for the most part. But I think of lakes where we used to catch 10-pound chrome panask triploids that don't winter anymore granted some of these lakes had aerators in the past and now that the stocking program has changed to kind of it's more of a put and take fishery it still has the potential for big fish but it's all about hitting that cycle and i know you know like when you these lakes tend to cycle do they not and and if you look back over history and you go wait a minute 12 years ago we were catching huge fish in this body of water maybe we should revisit it
0: yeah yeah you know um yeah, the, the, the lakes definitely build and then they peak in terms of their uh, their ability to to, to um, grow big fish. But um, you've, you 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 have to be able to spend the time to watch, commit the time to watch those fisheries to make sure you can maintain them and. Uh, you know, being a fisheries biologist today for the province is, uh, it's an extremely challenging position because it's, there. it's just not, uh, we're not in an era right now where you can hundred percent focus your, your time on, you know, managing those lakes the way you should be. You're, you're being pulled in a hundred different ways and, uh, you know, there's so much more bureaucracy and other, uh, Issues that uh, are, are being dealt with—that um, you know, the, I often refer back, you know, to what I call the glory days when we could just go out and 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 spend focus our time on developing fisheries. It's, it's unfortunately we're, we're just not not at that time right now where um, where we have the resources or the staff uh, um, or the uh, the uh, the uh, ability to be able to do that as well as we did in years past.
2: Mm-hmm. We're chatting today with Brian Chan. Now, uh, Brian is, obviously, he's got Rise, Forum Fly Fishing, fisheries advisor, retired fisheries biologist in the uh, Kamloops region of British Columbia, Canada, managed the uh, the waters in that region for many, many years, and, and uh, always happy to share his knowledge, Um uh, various books include fly fishing strategies for still water still water solutions um you can see him uh with the freshie gang on um sport fishing on the fly um brian i want to take it back to the water um fill in the blank for me when i'm not fly fishing i'm usually doing what
0: <laughs> when i'm not fly fishing well you know i um i, I in the past six years or so i I've gotten back into hunting again, and uh, and I um, and in particular uh, bow hunting, and uh, I've just been consumed with archery uh, when I'm not on the water and uh, hunting uh, deer with uh, my compound bow, and it's I I, I find uh, archery hunting so similar to fly fishing and it's except the uh, learning curve is extremely steep uh which has become a, another obsession for me and i uh i you know now i'm really torn in the fall months because i know there's some wonderful fishing opportunities but it's also a great time to be sneaking around out in the bush uh chasing down uh trying to get up close and personal with a, an, a, a nice mule deer or white-tailed deer. So, uh, that, that, that's my latest, uh, obsession. And, uh, uh, I have to be honest with you. I'm thoroughly addicted to it already.
2: <laughs> Are we talking ground blind tree stand? How, how, how's your preference as far as, um, you know, chasing, uh, mule deers and mule deer and, uh, whitetails.
0: You know, uh, for mule deer, it's 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 spot stock, uh, and stock and and getting trying to get in range uh, to them. But uh, you know, I head down to the uh, Okanagan region and uh, during the late season uh, archery hunt in December, and and hunt out of ground blinds in the in the snow. And uh, I, I I I just am fascinated with uh, with being able to get. That close and to be able to put everything together to get a shot, but I have to admit I have made so many rookie mistakes that I, I have to I have to just laugh and smile about it because I've had my chances, but uh, have just I, I honestly get buck fever so bad when I'm that close to the deer that it, it, it it's amazing. It's, it's just so thrilling for me to to be that close to them, but uh, obviously I. i I, you know i i i you know i made mistakes and didn't get a shot but i've been fortunate to get a few deer now with the bow and uh i i so love uh eating uh venison and uh it's it's been a real treat to be able to uh to uh, to, to harvest a deer like that and uh to do something that uh you know it's another quiet sport for me it's a lot of a lot of time by yourself and uh uh, it, it's just another challenge. And, and again, it's a, it, it's, just it reminds me so much of fly fishing.
2: Yeah. That makes sense on, on a lot of levels. And I, I did some bow hunting back in my younger days. And the, the thing that I really was fascinated by, especially if you're in a ground blind, those deer are coming to you. You know, it's not like the spot and stock mule deer. And there's something whether you rattle it in or you're using a grunt call, getting that deer to come to you is truly addictive i've only had it happen a few times but i understand it
0: yeah no it's getting them so close to you can see their you know their their breath coming out of the nose you can see their nose hairs and uh you know the body standing behind a tree and you can't get a shot
2: (laughs) You you want to know something funny brian one time my wife and i were walking in a Pretty well-known area in my neck of the woods uh, that has some big whitetails, and it was in the winter, so I want to say December, and we found some antler sheds, and we're just walking along, and all of a sudden I see this huge whitetail buck like on the knoll, and I said, to sue I go watch this." I didn't know what I was doing. I just start rattling. Well, the this thing, this whitetail turns around, runs at us full speed, slams on the brakes, probably forty feet, fifty feet away, and just starts. <laughs> slamming the ground with his front paw. And I'm just like, oh boy, oh no. <laughs> it was crazy.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That, that that would have my hair standing on the back of my neck.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of started waving my arms and thank God the the old white flag went up and, and he ran off. But I'll never forget that. I, I wasn't hunting. It just It just, everything kind of lined together. We found the sheds and it was really cool. And I can see why you spend so much time bow hunting cuz it is very similar to chasing those double digit fish in trophy waters
0: yeah it, you know exactly uh, it's, it's so so fortunate to have the opportunity to to live in an area where we can do both
2: how much fly tying are you doing these days
0: i um you know to be honest with you when i when i when i spend a day in the water i'm always at the bench that night uh either replacing uh flies that i lost or tweaking patterns you know I'll, I'll always uh sit down uh and crank out you know half a dozen dozen flies because i know i'm going to use them again and uh you know i've made mental notes during the day that i and i need to change this or change that and uh yeah i know it's uh, you know this time of year i don't have a lot of time to do it but uh it, I, I find it an, an important thing to do while ideas are fresh in my mind to, to, to work on some new products or, or new patterns or tweaking patterns. And uh, it just kind of completes the day.
2: I think that's a great tip because I know I always want to do that. I'm usually so tired. And then it's like you hit the pillow and you're like, oh, what if I did this? What if I did that? And in the morning, it's all gone. I know,
0: I know. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you that, uh, you know, I'm so tired most days getting out the water, uh, and uh, but when my head hits the pillow, my last thoughts are watching that indicator go down.
2: <laughs> it is so so addictive. Can I? Can you tell me a little bit about your tying setup, Brian? I'm really curious. Like, what kind of vice do you tie on? Is there certain? Um, products you use maybe whether it's stuff that you endorse through your fly fishing store.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I do I certainly um you know we you know Phil and I have our Phil Rowley and I have our online uh, stillwater store that we we sell our um flies that we've developed and and other patterns as well. And so you know that's a great great opportunity to uh, particularly for uh Uh, new anglers, uh, new fly fish to get some patterns that have had a lot of proven success and uh, help, uh, again, all about shortening that learning curve and uh, catching some fish.
2: Can you just paint me a picture of your dream day? So your perfect day. This is a blank canvas. You get up in the morning, whether that coffee's going, the type of lake you're headed to, the type of fishing you're going to be doing. Can you paint us a little... (laughs) picture you,
0: you know uh my perfect day would be uh you know just to start off with there would be a day when i i'm going to get some good bomber chronomit fishing so big chronomid pupa emerging and i would be on a lake that offered uh, you know uh ideally uh, the, the the hatch is coming off in say 17 to 23 feet of water. So I have the option of fishing with an indicator and a long leader or dangling deep lining with a wet line straight down off the side of the boat and, uh, give me that option any day. And I'm just, uh, you know, I I'm in seventh heaven because, you know, I'll be on a lake that that's got some good size fish in it. And, um, you know, the, 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 the bobber dunks are going to be fast and uh, the, the deep line rod is going to be doubled over and uh, lines screaming off your reel and the big fish jumping on the other side of the boat.
2: <laughs> that sounds pretty good. What is there something, uh, what's going on the barbecue at the end of the day and what are you, what are you drinking with it?
0: Uh, oh, what's going on the barbecue at the end of the day? You know, this time of year it would be a fresh coconut that I caught on a May <laughs> uh, Definitely. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it would be a nice, uh, a nice whitetail or mule deer steak on the barbecue it would be perfect as well.
2: That's fitting. That's totally fitting. Is there anything in your mind, Brian, that we as a group could be doing better? Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's a group of fly fishers, uh, you know, always, always try to educate other new anglers um, on, um, you know, uh, give them advice on how to fish. And, uh, you know, also uh, don't be afraid to, 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 you know, we get a lot of new anglers on the water that don't understand uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, fishing fishing lakes and how much room to give other anglers, you know, when the fishing get good, uh, you can get a lot of boats concentrated in a, in a small area. So there's, there's some etiquette that, uh, that, uh, uh, new anglers, uh, even, even experienced anglers, you know, should uh, some sometimes need to be reminded that we need to give each other room out there and, uh, so that we can all enjoy our fishing and, uh, uh you know but each each of us allow enough space between our boats so that we're not crowding each other out uh there there you know there there are more and more of us out on the lakes and uh and we need to be mindful of uh i think of that and so you know being polite and uh and educating others is, is a great thing to do there
2: yeah that's well put i think the etiquette yeah, we can all get better at that for sure. If you're deep dangling, as you say, in twenty feet of water, what chronometer patterns on the end of your line? Uh, well, depending on
0: the size of the pupa that are coming off, but you know, a, a really good, a really good pattern to dangle just to start off with is is our an old reliable black and red holographic ribbed. Uh, pupa with a white bead or a zucchini a black holographic flash boot bodied pupa with uh, with regular copper wire rib and a brown magic bead and a tuft of white uh, yarn or um, antron known for the gills those are both good search I call them searching patterns uh, um, the, the, for uh, actually for any uh, be it under an indicator or being uh, be it dangled under the boat 20, 30, 40 feet. And, uh, of course, you know, we always want to be able to land a, a fish, that first fish that we do catch. And then um, if it's big enough, you know, we can, we can do a proper throat pump and, uh, and get more dialed into what actually is coming off in, in, in terms of size and color.
2: Well, that's the biggest thing in my mind that you have brought uh, is that throat sampling, because it kind of gets this scientific brain going. What are these fish feeding on? How can I duplicate that? And, and I really think that really drives the obsession to get better on the still. <laughs> exactly, Mark. How many large fish have you caught on a black-bodied, red-ribbed, white ice cream cone kind of cranny?
0: Oh, I would say a fair number.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for doing this. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I so, so appreciate all the knowledge and uh, advice and just uh, your willingness to share with the fly fishing community over the years and what you've done for Stillwaters and stocking and fish programs in the province of British Columbia. We're, uh, we're grateful and, and thanks for taking the time today.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome, Mark. It's, it's great to chat with you, and uh, let's do it again at Is, some
2: point. Where Where's the best place to follow you to find what you're up to? Is it your fly fishing store? Is it Instagram? Is it Facebook? Where, where's the best place to to see what Brian Chan's doing these days?
0: Oh, so just for following me on, the, you know, actually, Mark, uh, you know, I'm on Instagram, and uh, it's at Brian Chan Fly Fishing. And, uh, you know, I make fairly regular posts. I kind of like showing bugs and, uh, you know, what what worked that day and and provide tips on um, how to up your game on the water. So, yeah, my Instagram post is fairly active, and and that would be a good one to follow.
1: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.